On January 19, 2017, Ovik Roy, opinion editor at Forbes magazine and founder and president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, delivered a lecture entitled The End of Cultural Conservatism as We Once Knew It. The lecture was delivered as part of the Acton Lecture Series 2017 at the Mark Murray Auditorium in the Acton Building in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Here now with his address is Ovik Roy. We're uh, obviously at a very interesting moment. Uh, tomorrow is the inauguration. January 20th is a date we often remember in our politics. I thought uh, I might start by talking about one of my favorite dates in recent American history, June 6, 1944. On June 6, 1944, as Allied troops landed on the beaches in Normandy, President Franklin Roosevelt began a national radio broadcast by doing something utterly unremarkable. He asked Americans to join him in prayer. The prayer went like this. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. No one at the time found it odd that President Roosevelt saw the fight against Nazi Germany as a struggle to preserve our religion. When people talk about making America great again, they're often thinking of the members of this greatest generation that overcame depression and war to build the American century. Some of the boys we sent to Normandy, like William Garfield Dabney, faced additional obstacles. Bill Dabney grew up in Roanoke, Virginia, the youngest of nine kids. In 1942, when he was 17 years old, he enlisted in the Army. Two years later, he participated in the Normandy invasion as a member of the 320th Barrage Battalion. Bill approached the shores of Normandy strapped to a blimp-shaped helium balloon armed with explosives. The point of the balloon, and dozens like it, was to hang in the air and block the Nazi planes from approaching the beach and strafing the Allied soldiers below. But Bill's balloon got shot down, and Bill got stuck in the sand as the dead bodies piled up all around him. Bill was one of the lucky ones. He survived D-Day. After the war, he made it home. He got a degree in electrical engineering. But he couldn't find work in his field because Bill was black. And in Roanoke, Virginia, blacks weren't allowed to work as electrical engineers. So Bill embarked on a career as a carpet, a carpet layer and a tile setter. It would be another 20 years before Bill and his family would be granted the ability to work in the same jobs and sit in the same classrooms and vote in the same elections as the Americans Bill fought to protect. Bill Dabney lived a full life, proud of his service to his country. But you can understand why Bill might not be nostalgic for the America of his youth. Why Bill and so many like him believe that America is greater today and freer today than it was in 1944. 
This debate between those who feel America has declined and those who feel it has improved is at the heart of this political moment. Last March, the Pew Research Center asked 2,254 Americans the question, compared with 50 years ago, is life for people like you in America better or worse? Democrats believe that life was better for people like them by a margin of 48% to 28%. Republicans believe that life was worse for people like them by a margin of 66% to 19%. Republicans supporting Donald Trump believed that life was even worse for people like them by a margin of 75% to 13%. There are those who believe that Trump rode to victory by speaking to the economic anxieties of the white working class, the Rust Belt shop workers whose jobs have been shipped to Mexico and China, people we knew so well in communities in Michigan. But that's not exactly right. In the 2016 primaries, the median household income of a Hillary Clinton supporter was $61,000 a year. For a Trump voter, it was $72,000 a year. Something else is going on, something with profound implications for the future of conservatism in America. As people in this audience are well aware, it wasn't that long ago that it was actually fashionable in intellectual circles to say that there was no such thing as a conservative movement in America. In 1950, the literary critic Lionel Trilling famously wrote that in the United States at this time, liberalism is not only the dominant, but the sole intellectual tradition. The conservative impulse and the reactionary impulse do not express themselves in ideas, but only in action or irritable mental gestures which seek to resemble ideas. In 1953, Russell Kirk, the benevolent uh, sage of Macosta, published The Conservative Mind from Burke to Santayana as a rejoinder to Trilling. And it was a group of young writers at National Review led by Bill Buckley and Frank Meyer who won the argument for good by forging what we now describe as a three-legged stool of modern American conservatism, economic liberty, cultural conservatism, and anti-communism. The fall of the Berlin Wall seemed to be the ultimate vindication of Buckley's movement. Four years after the Soviet Union disbanded, President Clinton, the one and only President Clinton, it turns out, can now be said, declared that the era of big government is over. We all remember that. History has a sense of humor because today, government is bigger than ever. Without the Soviets as a foil, American conservatism became a two-legged stool. For a time, it seemed that radical Islam would replace communism as the stool's third leg. But American conservatives today are divided as to how far we should go to fight back the Islamists. It's hard enough to sit on a stool with two legs, but before long, conservatism might be down to a one-legged stool because we no longer agree on the answer to that classic Russell Kirk question, what is it that we seek to conserve? Bill Buckley and those of us who follow in his footsteps have long thought of cultural conservatism as a coherent worldview inspired by Russell Kirk and Edmund Burke and Aristotle and those like them. But in 1955, cultural conservatism wasn't a coherent worldview. It was itself a coalition of different 
groups of people, different parties with different but compatible concerns, what you might call a four-legged chair. Some cultural conservatives were similar to the evangelical and Catholic conservatives of today, striving to bring Christian theological teachings into their politics. Other cultural conservatives, particularly the intellectually minded ones, found virtue in the aristocracies of the old world. They shared the small r Republican views of many of the founders who distrusted pure democracy and favored rule by a principled elite. Still others were at home with the middle American culture of Norman Rockwell and Bob Hope, a conservatism of convention and common ground among people who enjoyed fitting in with their neighbors and being temperamentally indisposed to causing a stir. A final group cared about America most for the same reason that Danes care about Denmark, or the J Japanese care about Japan, because it was theirs. In 1955, the common ground among these four groups, the theologians, the elites, the middle Americans, and the nationalists, was nearly complete. That harmony can be heard in the stentorian cadence of President Roosevelt's National Radio Address on the morning of D-Day, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization. In 1955, lower, middle, and upper-income Americans shared many of the same aspirations. They fought for the same flag. They went to churches that preached from the same book. Things are different today. The proportion of Americans who subscribe to the cultural views of 1955 has dramatically shrunk. Today's American elites, which I'll define as the wealthy and the influential, the people with disproportionate influence in our culture and our society, are overwhelmingly culturally liberal, not conservative. Not so long ago, corporate advertisers would boycott programs that advocated left-wing causes. Now it's the other way around. Last year, it was business elites who rebelled when North Carolina passed a law requiring transgendered people to use the bathroom of their biological gender. Mainstream American culture, of course, is far removed from Norman Rockwell and Bob Hope. We can blame Hollywood all we want for this eventuality, but popular culture is by definition popular. It's what people consume by choices, and today they have thousands of choices, as we all know. Not so long ago, the social views of the left were well outside of the cultural mainstream. Today, it's the social views of the right that are on the margins. The fastest growing religion in America is that of those who in surveys answer none. To some degree, this is because Americans are more secular than they were before. But it's also because secularism is far more accepted today than it was before. Theological conservatives, including some in this room, are today comparable to the theological conservatives of yesteryear. Maybe that's the one, one aspect of cultural conservatism that is, that is continuous from those olden days. But they are far fewer in number and far less influential among elites and middle Americans alike. Donald Trump's core base, the nationalists, had largely gone unnoticed until now because their views depart from modern American conservative orthodoxy. They're deeply skeptical of free trade, foreign intervention, of immigration, both legal and illegal. Their views are captured by the pseudonymous writer Publius Decius Moos, who in the Claremont Review of Books last September wrote an essay entitled 
the Flight 93 election that many are embracing as a manifesto for the Trump era. Moose writes, if conservatives are right about the importance of virtue, morality, religious faith, stability, character, and so on in the individual, if they are right about sexual morality or what came to be termed family values, if they are right about the importance of education to inculcate good character and to teach the fundamentals that have defined knowledge in the West for millennia, if they are right about societal norms and public order, if they are right about the centrality of initiative, enterprise, industry, and thrift to a sound economy and a healthy society, if they are right about the soul-sapping effects of paternalistic big government and its cannibalization of civil society and religious institutions, if they are right about the necessity of a strong defense and a prudent statesmanship in the international sphere, if they are right about the importance of all this to national health and even survival, then they must believe, mustn't they, that we are headed off a cliff. Moose argues that conservatism is incapable of saving America from civilizational decline because conservatives are, well, too conservative, small c. They're too cautious. They're too mindful of public opinion and conventional wisdom. They're too concerned about their careers. They lack, in other words, the courage of those who write under assumed names like Publius Decius Moose. According to Moose, what we need is a radical movement that will take on the biggest threat to America as we know it. Quote, the ceaseless importation of third world foreigners with no tradition of, taste for, or experience in liberty. The ceaseless importation of third world foreigners, Moose writes, means that the electorate grows more left and less traditionally American with every cycle. More left and less traditionally American. Moose is not alone in believing that the ceaseless importation of third world immigrants is moving America to the left. So let's look at the data. The largest point of origin today for immigrants to the United States isn't Mexico. It isn't Latin America. It's Asia. In 1990, Asians comprised 5% of Americans, America's foreign-born population. Today, it's over 30%. Moose complains that third-world immigrants don't share our tradition of liberty. And it's true that many of those immigrants come from countries with no tradition of liberty. But many do. Today, the plurality of Asian immigrants to the United States comes from India. India is a third-world country, I'll grant you that. But Indians have lived in a parliamentary democracy since 1948 and under British common law for far longer, a tradition of liberty that compares favorably to those of first world countries like Spain, Portugal, Germany, let alone the nations of Eastern Europe, like Poland, Ukraine. Okay, you might say that accounts for Indians, but what about the immigrants from other parts of Asia? Surely they aren't here because they value our traditions. In fact, if Conservative American values are the values of family, personal responsibility, education, and hard work, the values that Publius Decius Moose has sworn to defend. Then Asians are the most conservative demographic group in America. The divorce rate for Asians in America is 21%. For non-white Hispanics, or excuse me, non-Hispanic whites, it's 40%. The teen birth rate for Asians 
is 8%. For whites, it's 17%. The illegitimacy rate, the percentage of births coming from unmarried women, for Asians, it's 17%. For whites, 29%. I'm not done. Moose believes that mass immigration is undermining our educational system. Not for Asians. 30% of white Americans have a college degree. 54% of Asian Americans do. Moose believes that third world immigrants are taking advantage of our welfare system, not Asians. In 2015, median household income for whites was $63,000 a year. For Asians, it was $77,000 a year. Asians are, in fact, paying far more to fund our welfare state than they're receiving in benefits. For years, we've made excuses for our performance among blacks and Latinos. By citing all the statistics I'm giving you, but in reverse. Because blacks and Hispanics, we say, have higher illegitimacy rates and lower incomes than whites, we say, they're going to vote for more free stuff. They're going to vote for more welfare. They can't handle their own affairs. That excuse makes less sense when you start thinking about Asians. Again, the largest immigrant group to America today. Republicans and Democrats used to split the Asian vote. George H.W. Bush actually won Asians. In 2004, his son earned a respectable 44% of the Asian vote. Today, things are different. Last November, Donald Trump lost the Asian vote 65 to 29 the same margin by which he lost Hispanics. In 2012, Mitt Romney did even worse among Asians, losing them 73 to 26. I'm overwhelming you with all these statistics to drive home a point, a crucial point. For decades, we cultural conservatives have had to defend ourselves from the critique that we don't sincerely care about the values of family and hard work that we talk a good game about values, but that the reality is darker, that we're sectarians at best and racists at worst, that our pessimism about America's path is not driven by the state of civil society, but by the fact that the America of 2017 is more diverse ethnically and racially than the America of 1947. Our failure to embrace the contributions of Asians to our civil society, to assume, in Moose's words, that they are less traditionally American, has validated that critique and driven Asian voters and countless others into the arms of the left. The path prescribed by Publius Decius Moose won't renew cultural conservatism. It will guarantee its extinction. By all means, we should secure our southern border. Our bipartisan failure to do so is an understandable source of resentment for millions of Americans. But if conservatives take the view that legal immigrants from non-European countries are enemies of our values, ignoring all evidence to the contrary, then our movement deserves to lose. If we conclude that family, piety, and responsibility are solely the province of Americans of European extraction and not universal human values, then we have no moral claim to govern a country founded upon the idea that all men are created equal. For the next generation, if cultural conservatism is to survive, it cannot continue to be, in Roosevelt's word, words, a struggle to preserve our religion. 
What we must conserve instead is the idea that truly makes America exceptional, that anyone can come here from anywhere, regardless of race or color or creed, and be welcomed into the American fabric if they work hard and play by the rules. We cultural conservatives have our own work to do to find common social ground with immigrants from non-Christian traditions. It's not impossible. In 2006, Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper buttonholed one of his key allies, Jason Kenney, and talked, tasked him with taking the Conservative Party of Canada's message into immigrant precincts, one of Kenney's passions. For years thereafter, Kenney would travel nearly every weekend, meeting with Sikhs and Koreans and Ukrainians, reading Chinese-Canadian newspapers, eating interesting food, giving immigrants a stake in the government he was helping to lead. In the next election, conservatives won 24 of Toronto's 25 sub suburban precincts, what they call ridings. It's a performance they never would have been able to achieve if they had written off the immigrant vote the way Publius Decius Moose wants us to. I'm going to conclude by telling you a story of how I became a cultural conservative. I was born on the other side of the state, as Dan mentioned, in Rochester, a suburb of Detroit. Though I haven't lived in Michigan since I was 15, my heart remains here. My wife can vouch for the stacks of t-shirts and sweaters I have in our closet emblazoned with the logos of the Red Wings and the Tigers and the Wolverines. I left Michigan at the age of 15 because my parents got divorced and my dad moved to Texas. It was the worst year of my life. As I began to pay attention to politics, I noticed that only one party, the Republicans, was expressing concern about rising divorce rates and the toll divorce takes on children. I found God. My dad, Arun Kumar Roy, died in 2003 at the relatively young age of 64. His favorite president was Jack Kennedy because he admired Kennedy's passion for civil rights. But dad's second favorite president was Ronald Reagan, for whom he voted twice. I'll never forget one day in 1980, when I was seven years old, coming into dad's office. He showed me an academic paper with a bunch of numbers on it and said, son, over the next 10 years, the Soviet Union is going to fall. They're not going to be able to keep up with our economy. No empire lasts forever. I didn't take him seriously. I was seven. In elementary school, my friends and I regularly actually argued about which branch of the armed services we would enlist in when World War III broke out. To us, it seemed certain that the Soviet Union was going to last forever and that we would eventually go to war with them, and we'd have to decide. Did we want to be in the Army or the Navy or the Air Force? My parents became naturalized U.S. citizens, the kind Ronald Reagan once called Americans by choice. They didn't come here on the Mayflower. They didn't come here from Europe. They aren't, in that sense, traditionally American. But they appreciated America's values all the more because they came from somewhere else. They screamed and yelled as passionately as any parent from Lake Placid when the US hockey team beat the Soviets in 1980. They never understood why so many native-born Americans in the 70s were ashamed to fly the US flag. America in 2044 will not look like it did in 1944. We all know that. Five years ago, for the first time, 50.4% of children born in the United States 
or non-white. If cultural conservatism is the sole province of Americans of European descent, then Moose is right. Conservatism has already lost. But in these challenging times, there is a unique opportunity to prove once and for all that liberty and responsibility are values that transcend race and that transcend religion. If we succeed, we can do more than win national elections. We will achieve the fullest expression of the nobility and the humanity of cultural conservatism. Thank you. Thank you, Ovik. We now have uh, a great amount of time, about 25 minutes to uh, ask questions. Mike has a microphone on this side. Who would like to go first? Given your background, what do you think the chances are for meaningful reform to Obamacare? Um, I would say they're definitely under 50%. Um, and the reason why is this, that, and this is something that a lot of people have forgotten about the way Obamacare passed. There are only certain things you can do according to Senate rules with a simple majority of 50 or 51 senators. For most things, you have to overcome a filibuster, which requires 60 votes. Republicans control 52. And so there are certain parts of Obamacare that you can deal with through the reconciliation process. You can defund it, you can get rid of the subsidies, and you can get rid of the tax hikes. But that's it. The reconciliation process is basically only for things that affect the budget, taxing and spending. There may be certain regulations, because they have such profound effects on the budget, that you can use reconciliation to affect. But there's going to be a lot of Obamacare that you can't repeal through reconciliation. There are parts, big parts of Obamacare, the vast majority of it, were passed with 60 votes in that brief window when Democrats controlled 60 votes before Scott Brown won in Massachusetts. So the fact is, if Republicans want to replace Obamacare, they're going to need to do something that's bipartisan because so much of it is the regulations. And um, it's, they don't have a strategy right now to come up with a bipartisan bill that can get 60 votes. At my new think tank, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, we published one that was built from the ground up to get 60 votes. And the way we did that was we said, what are the big democratic objectives? They want to get universal coverage, and they, want to, uh, they say they want to help poor people. We conservatives care about limited government. We want to reduce the spending and the taxation and the intrusiveness and the regulations. It turns out our healthcare system is so messed up you can do both. It really is. I mean, think about this. You know, a lot of us conservatives, we assume that universal coverage means more government. But raise your hand if you believe more government is necessary to make sure that every American has a smartphone. Raise your hand if you think more government will mean more people have jobs in America. So why is it that we concede to the left that more government leads to more access to health care and health insurance? If we actually let the free market work, we could deliver those services at way lower cost with much higher quality than we do today. And so transcending Obamacare, our plan is designed to do that. It's to show how free markets can achieve the results that progressives say they care about, but through a more uh, patient-centered mechanism with more individual choice. So we're fighting that battle. We're hoping we can convince uh, uh, Congress to move in that direction. But it's going to take time because there's a lot of um, skepticism among Republicans that they have any willing partners among the Democrats and vice versa. 
Yeah, you've done some great writing in healthcare, so thank, thank you for all, all you're doing there. You know, in Michigan, um, under Governor, Governor Schneider, we ex expanded Medicaid to, you know, another you know, six, 600,000 people or something. And, and, and a lot of the bills for that have been, you know, put, put down the road, haven't they? So, so the feds are going to cut back on what they're putting in the state of Michigan. Michigan traditionally had trouble balancing the budget without that. So I mean, where do you think we're headed with that Medicaid population, a population that typically doesn't have the resources uh, to you know, pay out of pockets and deductibles and so on and, and doesn't take very good care of themselves either? Where do you think we're heading with that population? Yeah, great question. Actually, the last time I was here in Grand Rapids uh, was in 2013 when the Mackinac Center had me uh, speak to a group of their supporters about the Medicaid expansion. I explained that um, I thought that expanding Medicaid was a terrible idea. Uh, Snyder did it because uh, there was a certain accounting uh, gimmick involved. Uh, there was a, uh, a, a portion of the Michigan Medicaid program that was going to mental health uh, services above and beyond what was required by the federal government to offer in the Medicaid program. And by expanding Medicaid, uh, Michigan could offload those costs onto federal taxpayers uh, and uh, and the idea was that this would then be deposited in a, a lockbox, in, in, in a bucket somewhere, that could then be used to pay for uh, future health spending down the road. But over the long term, that, that, would work, that works for the first couple of years, but over the long term, over a 10, 20-year time horizon, Michigan will end up spending a lot more money at the state level, let alone at the federal level, for the Medicaid expansion. Uh, so it's a huge problem. And by the way, the most important thing about Medicaid is, is not that we spend money on it. Uh, it's that the program doesn't work. I wrote a book uh, a few years ago called How Medicaid Fails the Poor that goes through all the medical literature around how people on Medicaid, people enrolled in Medicaid, do no better in terms of their health outcomes than people with no health insurance at all. We spend $450 billion a year on this program to achieve that result, which is totally insane. And it's because the program is so poorly designed that the only flexibility states have to manage their costs is to pay doctors and hospitals less money to provide the same care that private insurers pay. So what happens over time? As the fees doctors get from Medicaid gets ratcheted lower and lower, a lot of doctors drop out of the program and they stop accepting Medicaid. So you have this piece of plastic that says you have health insurance. It's great for the statistics and the headlines. But when it comes to actually seeing a doctor who will take your insurance, it's a lot harder. And so your cancer gets diagnosed when it's already too late rather than early on when it might be, could be taken care of your cholesterol and your diabetes don't get managed. So these patients do really, really badly. Uh, and in my view, the worst thing about Obamacare is the fact that it expanded this program and shoved 16 million more Americans, or is attempting to shove 16 million more Americans into Medicaid. Thank you very much for your presentation today. And um, many of the folks here, I'm sure, have read and heard you on radio and so I have a simple question that I suspect may not evoke a simple answer. But with your working knowledge of Obamacare and prior to Obamacare, what can be done to undo every one of these executive orders that were uh, attached and or grew out of a plan for health care that's not even eight years old? to put us back at the Civil War ante. Thank you. 
Well, the, the things that were done through executive orders and through regulations, a lot of that can be rolled back. But remember that Obamacare is this 2,200-page bill, right? So a lot of the things that are driving up premiums all over the country, including Michigan, are driven by things that are spelled out in the law that Congress passed. In other words, the executive branch doesn't have the legal authority to undercut them or undermine them. Obama tried to do it a few times, as we all know. And you know, in theory, Republicans could, uh, could serve that back at them. But they would be sued, uh, and they would lose in court. Uh, if they tried to do that. So real reform has to come from passing new laws. And this is why you know, I always get worried when Republicans and conservatives talk about how Obamacare is collapsing under its own weight. I find that rhetoric very dangerous. Yes, Obamacare is failing. But you know what Ronald Reagan used to say? The surest path to eternal life is to be a government bureau. Medicaid has been failing for 51 years, 52 years. That hasn't prevented Medicaid from growing into a $450 billion a year program and for the governor of Michigan to expand it, right? Government programs fail. When businesses fail, they go out of business. When government programs fail, they get more money, right? So Obamacare is failing, yes, but that doesn't mean it just, the law just vaporizes and goes away like it would in the private sector. And so we have to be vigilant. If we want a different kind of health care system, we have to pass laws to do that. And I think that's very important for people to understand, that we can't just sort of wait for Obamacare to go away on its own. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that the, uh, the, the transition team uh, is prepared to, to roll back a lot of those executive actions and to put in new ones that, to go as far as they can go. And what I'm trying to explain is that that gets you about 3% of the way to a free market health care system. It doesn't get you very far at all because so much of what Obamacare does to distort the health insurance market is spelled out in the law, not by executive action. Dr. Roy, if... Uh you add up all the dollars spent on what we call health insurance. Do you have any idea approximately how much of it is for real insurance, uh, things you don't want to ever to have happen, and, and it's a disaster and it's costly, and then all the other things that are not really insurance, they're just covered, normal expenses like yeah. brakes, shocks, oil changes, and all that stuff. Prepaid. Well, there's, that, 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 there's, a, there's a couple of ways to answer that. So um, you could break it down by what percentage of American health spending is in the hospital versus in doctor's office, because it's really the hospital stuff, for example, that's the most expensive. Roughly 20 to 25% of U.S. health spending is hospital spending. But there's an additional problem, which is that because for now 70 years we've had this system where nobody buys health insurance on their own, or almost nobody, where we get it from our employer or we get it from the government. We've all been divorced from the value and the quality of the care we buy. The reason health care in America is so expensive is it's like an open bar at your in-law's wedding, right? So you go to the open bar, maybe not the Acton Institute bar in the back, but if you go, if you go to the open bar at your in-law's wedding, 
you know, at least for me, I'm not getting the Bud Light. I'm getting the single malt scotch or whatever the best thing they've got over there, right? But if it's a cash bar, then maybe I am. I'm going, oh, okay, in Grand Rapids, I'll go for the, the Bells or, or whatever, right? So, um, and maybe that's a little bit more, but, but you, know what, you see what I'm saying? Like, the cash bar, uh, we're, we're more disciplined with our own spending when we're spending it ourselves. And the problem with our healthcare system is, again, for 70 years, most of us have not been, not only have we not been spending the money directly, paying, paying the hospitals and doctors for those services, but we're not even shopping for the insurance ourselves. So 75% of the money is not for insurance, it's prepaid, and that gives you the same incentive to, it's covered, let's spend it. Sort of like being at the, yeah, at the so wedding Yeah, so what I'm arguing is that it's a two-factor a two problem. There's the fact that insurance should cover a lot less of the spending than it does. And then the price of everything is much higher because hospitals and doctors and drug companies and medical device companies can charge much higher prices because you don't see the bill. How many of you even know how much is taken out of your paycheck each month to pay for your health insurance? Raise your hand. Probably the people who actually own businesses can raise their hand and answer that question, right? But you know, when I was at the Manhattan suit, I actually had to go out of my way to ask the HR guy, I'm like, how much are you taking out of my paycheck to, to pay for my insurance? Because I, otherwise I wouldn't get the answer. Um, so this is the challenge. And, and so my message in terms of, if, you, if, you, if people often ask me, like, what's your one-line answer to how to fix the healthcare system, right? Uh, and my one-line answer is, the more we can move to a system where patients are controlling their own healthcare dollars, the more we're going to have freedom and free markets and a higher quality system in healthcare. The reason we have such a poor quality system is because we're so removed from those decisions. Thank you. Along that same line, what do you think of what happened in 1987 where we put price controls on Medicare Part B, uh, and it's still... You know, it, it's still unmanageable. Yeah, and that was done during the Reagan administration. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's it's uh, it's only made things worse. Um, but you know, here's something interesting about the history of Medicare. So, uh, in the old days, and you may know this, uh, the American Medical Association was always the bulwark against uh, nationalized uh, medicine. So the AMA was really worried that if we had uh, single payer health care or something like it, that the government would be basically telling doctors how to practice medicine, and the MA was resolutely against that. So LBJ, being the savvy, clever guy he was, uh, he, he basically said, okay, how do we get the AMA to shut up? He figured it out. He said, we're going to pass Medicare, but we're going to tell doctors they can charge whatever they want. The buzzword or the buzz phrase, the legal language, was the usual, customary, and reasonable rates, which is a term that you found in health insurance. It basically said, doctors can charge whatever they want, Taxpayers will pay the bill. They won't fight you on that. And magically, what happened? It was like the open bar at the in-law's wedding. In 1965, Congress projected that by 1990, we'd be spending $10 billion on an inflation-adjusted basis on Medicare. The real number was $110 billion. Today, it's $780 billion. Because when you make something free, people economically want to consume more of it. Um, and so the, what you've described about 1987, that was an effort to try to rein in those costs. Didn't really work, but that was what they tried. You know, the solution to a failed government program is always more government. Um, and this is, this is a problem that we're trying to move beyond with some of the Medicare reforms that Paul Ryan and others have proposed. Um, and I hope we can make some progress there. Obviously, the president-elect is not necessarily on board with Medicare reform. 
But um, again, the more we can move people to have more control of those health care dollars, and even helping and subsidizing that for the poor and the sick and the vulnerable, which I, which I support. If you're gonna, we could have a true safety net and spend a quarter of what we spent. Singapore, which has universal health insurance in a much more market-oriented way than we do, they spend one-seventh of what we spend. And they cover everybody on a per capita basis. Yes, it's a small country, but the economics are economics, and their system works really well. And there's a lot we can learn from countries that have tried to do it in a more market-based way where patients control their own dollars. And the more we can move that system, the better. And that should be your test of anything that Republicans put out in Congress. Are, am I going to control more of my health care dollars as a result of this plan? If not, it's probably not going to be so great. Thank you for these very provocative comments. I'd like to <clears throat> ask you, let's get back to the, your original remarks. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> I'd like to ask you about cultural conservatism at its heart. A famous University of Michigan professor, a great friend of the Acton Institute, he happened to be my dissertation advisor at Michigan, Stephen Tonser said that the essence of cultural conservatism does come back to a Roman Catholicism, an Anglo-Catholicism. He, he took the religion line. Uh, and you're, you're seeking a revision of that so that cultural conservatism can survive. So I think the question that arises for me is, what is it about Western civilization that provides that, say, underlying foundation, whether it's for the Anglo and Roman Catholics on the one side, or some of the reforms and changes in values that you're calling for, uh, what is it about Western civilization that has enabled cultural conservatism to sustain itself at all and will continue in the future? That's a terrific question. Thank you so much. Um, there's a lot we can say about this time. We can spend all day answering that question. Um, I think that we have to start by saying, what is distinctive about Western civilization? What we used to call Christendom, actually, before that became a politically incorrect term. What's distinctive about Western civilization is not, uh, it's, it's, it does have distinctive religious institutions, but um, a lot of other civilizations have religious institutions. Uh, the religion, the content of the religion might be a little different. Um, but what makes, the, what makes the West different is its tradition of liberalism not just in terms of political liberalism, but also religious liberalism, I would argue. Uh, uh, Richard Weaver in Ideas Have Consequences talks about this in a negative way. He says, everything went to hell, almost literally, after William of Ockham decided that people could effectively define their own reality in the 11th century, and then came Protestantism and all sorts of other terrible things like democracy. Um, but, his, but, but, but he identifies something important, I think, which is that what makes the West distinctive is its tradition of uh, the recognition of the political sovereignty of individuals. That's, that's something that the West contributed to the world. Uh, and if you layer upon that both the Protestant and Roman Catholic traditions, uh, in particular, I think, the Christian message of mercy is, is very important and distinctive. And the fact that Christians are not, and Russell Kirk talks about this, that Christianity is not ethnically particular. Right? The way in many religions, uh, to, in order to be that religion, you have to be of a certain genetic heritage. For example, in Hinduism, um, there's a caste system that, is, uh, that you are a descendant of this caste, and if you're not part of that system, then you really can't be a Hindu. You can't really convert to Hinduism uh, in the way you can to Christianity. In Judaism, right, there's a chosen people. Um, so that's something that's distinct about Christianity that I think applies 
and has echoes in the political traditions that we're talking about. But I also think, as I mentioned in my remarks, that, uh, that, we, that not only can we not uh, define America as a Christian or even a Judeo-Christian country anymore, but that we, we make cultural conservatism less accessible and less successful by doing so. Because there are other cultural traditions out there that have learned from what the West has offered. If you look at the economies of the Pacific Rim, uh, anyone who's been to Japan, I tell you what, the Japanese, uh, it's a very different culture than America, you, you know, in so many ways. But if you spend time in Japan and you see how polite they are and how respectful authority they are and how hardworking they are and how diligent they are, there's quite a bit of common ground there between the way the Japanese conduct themselves and why they've been such a successful country all these years and what we do. And so I feel that where we've lost, it made sense, I think, what, uh, what uh, Stephen Thompson and Russell Kirk and others talked about in mid-century America when the demographics were very different. They had no way of seeing what America would be 60 years, 70 years down the road. But I think for the America of today, we shouldn't be so pessimistic and think that those, those values that we care about so much, again, family, diligence, hard work, responsibility, that those are unique to Christendom. There are many, many religious traditions, many, many cultural traditions which preach the same things. And we need those allies if we want to protect our own faith and our own religious tradition. Could I uh, get under the rock just a little further with respect to your plan? Like a lot of people are uh, heralding the virtue of H expanded HSAs, uh, catastrophic insurance without mandate, particularly those in their 20s and 30s, which would cover about 80 to 90 percent of the needs of those people, if not more. Uh, opening up insurance, particularly the above types of insurance, to be sold by companies across state line. Establishing pools. Uh, for reinsurance and insurance and reinsurance to cover those with pre-existing condition, perhaps favorable taxation for those companies who pull that money for that purpose. Your plan include some of that stuff, or could you just elucidate a little bit more on some of these issues? Yeah, so if you want to learn more about, uh, about transcending Obamacare, you can go to the website of my think tank, freeop.org, F-R-E-O-P-P.org. And uh, for the quick and dirty introduction, there's an article right on the top of the website called Understanding Free Ops Obamacare Replacement in 10 Minutes or Less. And that goes through, uh, it just says, okay, here's what Free Op does that Obamacare does, uh, or the Transcending Obamacare does that Obamacare does too. It covers people with pre-existing conditions, for example. Here's what Obamacare does that our plan doesn't do. Here's what our plan does that Obamacare doesn't do. And here's how it differs from the other Republican or conservative plans or market-based plans that are out there. So, uh, so I would recommend that to you. And yes, uh, health savings accounts in particular are a big part of how we think about making healthcare better and more accessible to more people. Um, broadly speaking, one of the things we drew from in transcending Obamacare was Friedrich Hayek's constitutional liberty. In constitutional liberty, this is not widely known, Friedrich Hayek actually came out in favor of universal coverage. He said that in, a country, in countries as wealthy as ours, uh, health insurance, access, universal access to health insurance is like universal access to a primary and secondary education. It's a public good and it's a, a legitimate uh, a, a place for the government to have a safety net that is well designed and, and market oriented. Uh, and we've tried to, uh, to live up to that reputation and, this, and, and for an important reason, which is that a libertarian utopia is not democratically stable. 
in a democracy, there will always be a call for us to have a safety net for those who can't provide for themselves when it comes to health insurance. And for, I think, very understandable reasons. If a mother has a child born with Down syndrome, do we want uh, that mother to endure the economic uh, effects of raising that child just by herself? Or should we all try to rally together to help her? Or do we want to say to her, no, uh, don't bring that child into the world because it's too expensive, right? So uh, I think there is a case to be made for a robust safety net that subsidizes coverage for the uninsured, including health savings accounts. But for everybody else who can afford health care, get the government out of the way and let them consume the health care that they want to consume. If you did that, as we talked about earlier, you can spend a fraction of what we spend. You wouldn't have a budget deficit in America if we, if we had this kind of a system. So, and the idea is not to say, junk everything we have now and then go to that system. You have to gradually, to, to learn from Edmund Burke and Russell Kirk, you have to gradually evolve to a better system. The system we have today, for all it's messed up, it didn't evolve overnight. It's been 70 years. It's going to take us a couple of decades to unwind it and move it in a different direction. I think we have to be patient in that regard. We can't expect the Republican plan or any good plan to do it all in one shot. Freeop.org, F-R-E-O-P-P.org. That's the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Question. Uh, you noted early on uh, the benefit that India derived from its association with the British colonial empire and the Judeo-Christian heritage that they also inherited, which gave them the liberalism that you talked about. And I, I was, did you also, you didn't note that Hong Kong was a British colony for a long time, and out of that we have the growth and free enterprise system, is, and they now serve as a model, or they can serve as a model for our healthcare system. I, and what one question, that was an editorial comment I made. Great points, great points. And the question is, uh, uh, when you talk about conservatism, I mean liberalism, are you talking about current day interpretation of liberalism, or are you talking about Jeffersonian liberalism? Yeah, in this crowd, I have to be very careful with my references to classical liberalism versus uh, uh, contemporary liberalism, right? So uh, I don't remember. I think I was talking about contemporary liberalism because I don't think I make references to classical liberalism specifically in this talk. But it's a, it's a point well taken. And, you know, that maybe adds to the earlier question, which is what, what have been some of the you know, contributions of the West? Uh, it's been, you know, not just uh, individual uh, uh, political sovereignty, but also the institutions of constitutional government, uh, which uh, the West has brought to the world. But it's important for us to understand that though, though the West invented some of those ideas, most of those ideas, uh, they are ideas that other parts of the world have uh, taken hold of and done great things with. This pessimism that, that non-Europeans are incapable of self-government, that they're incapable of, of working hard and being responsible and being pious and being diligent. Uh, it's, it's disproven by the evidence, and it's, uh, it's, it's a guaranteed way to alienate people who are actually on our side on everything that's important. What efforts do you see um, happening, if any, to bring in the immigrant population to conservatives? And do you think it's even possible, given the current demographic of conservatives in America, to really integrate immigrants into the conservative tradition? 
Yeah, so one of the things I alluded to at the end of my talk was what the Canadian Conservative Party has done, which I think we can uh, learn a lot from. I, I only spent a couple of uh, lines on it, but it's, it's something that I encourage you to look up. There are a number of profiles out there this, of Jason Kenney and what he did. Right now he's in the news for other reasons. He's in a big battle in Alberta. They're having this big fight about how to merge the conservative, progressive conservatives with this other uh, conservative party called the Wild Rose or the Wild Rose or something like that. Anyway, but if you go back a couple years, you, there's a McLean's uh, profile in particular of him that talks about all the things that they did in Canada. And a lot of it's just blocking and tackling. You know, and this is, again, the thing that I, I feel like we've, we've messed up on our side. We've just assumed, we've written off entire groups of people. We say we're not the, group, uh, the movement of identity politics. That's the left. They do identity politics. We're about the individual. And yet we've written off entire groups of people because we've assumed that they don't share our values. And what Jason Kenney and, and, his, and his colleagues in Canada did is they went into those communities. They went to the, the Sikh annual meeting in Toronto and just listen and learn. Is that here's, you know, the community often would have oddball requests. You know, there was a, I think there's a story in the McLean's profile of, I think it's Cambodians. They wanted some, uh, they wanted the, the, the federal government of Canada to recognize some atrocity that had happened in Cambodia. So they passed a resolution to do that in the, in the parliament. And the Cambodian community was so happy that they all started voting conservative. I mean, it was, often it was dumb things like that. Not dumb, I shouldn't say it's dumb. It's important to the Cambodians. But these are not things that involve moving to the left on policy. It's just people want to know that their government is listening to them, that if you're a Canadian citizen who happens to be from Cambodian, you're a Canadian citizen, and you're an equal partner in the Canadian project to Canadian citizens who came there from England. And similarly in America, I think that's been the thing that we haven't done. It's, it's not merely about the techniques of reaching out and, and doing that stuff. That matters. But we, what we actually need to do first and the thing that we've had the, 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 the most pro the trouble with is that attitudinal change, that optimism, that belief that if we go into those communities, we can make a difference. Because a lot of us, I think, have just given up, like Publius uh, in the uh, Claremont Review of Books. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Um, <clears throat>